This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Jenkins, creator of Jenkins the Valet. For those unfamiliar, Jenkins was one of the first creators to explore the full potential of utilizing the IP granted and ownership of an NFT. In this episode, we explore how Jenkins developed the story around this digital character, how this character evolved into its own being, and how that initial act of storytelling opened up an impressive amount of business opportunities. Please enjoy my conversation with Jenkins. Today, I have Jenkins, the founder of Jenkins Valet. Jenkins, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm pumped to be here. I thought an interesting place to start would be pseudonymity. I think this is a big part of Web3 that people can have an anonymous personality and still provide content and their opinion online on Twitter and Discord. You are our first anonymous guest, so I'm excited to have you. I'd just like to start with your opinion of pseudonymity and the power and drawbacks of using it. Totally. Yeah. I mean, outside of the fact that pseudonymity is an incredibly difficult word to say, I would say that it's critical, probably quite a lot of what we'll talk about on the pod, because there's this weird thing going on even right now, which is that you're talking to Jenkins, the human, but this whole brand and business is built around Jenkins, the valet, a character that's actually a separate entity. Both are one, both are different at the same time. And I think it's unlocked a whole bunch of creative potential for me and my co-founder Safa, as well as like so many other people in the Web3 space. It shouldn't be surprising that so many people have opted to use pseudonyms in the space. Yeah, I started off anonymous myself because I wasn't sure how I would participate in the space. And I remember us talking. And I also then remember finding it weird after I doxed myself to talk to you again. One of the funniest things when that kind of stuff happens is that I knew Eric and I knew Rourke and both of them existed in my head because of where we'd been talking. But I didn't realize for like a couple months that you were the same person. And so I remember when I saw your ape and I was like, wait a second, that's Rourke. It blew my mind. Yeah, it's an interesting moment, this idea of like coming out with who you really are. Yeah, exactly. One interesting current events thing was there was this doxing of the board Ape founders. And I think it caused a lot of emotion in the space that people had worked so hard and felt comfortable with it. What was your take on when that happened? Yeah, I mean, of course, when somebody prefers to identify in one way on the internet versus another, I think we should give them the respect of treating them that way or, or referring to them in that way. And so what was, I thought, unfortunate about that circumstance was that it seemed to be against their will, although I didn't follow it super closely. What I really loved was the reaction from the community and all of the people who posted photos of themselves next to their avatar or shared their names or shared something about themselves or shared support for the founders of Yuga Labs. Because what it said to me was like, look, even though you used to be this avatar, with these blue beams or, or this outfit or something like that. And now I know your name or I know more about you. Like You're still that same person to me. You still play this role in my life. You still play this role in the space that I care so much about. It doesn't matter. And I think the fact that the community really rallied around like that, that it doesn't matter, probably made a bunch of people feel really comfortable about whatever their decision is to be doxxed, to be undoxed, to be somewhere sort of in the middle thinking about doxing. That was a positive, I think, side effect of what happened. And I promise the listeners will get to explain what Jenkins the Ballet is for people who don't understand it. But before we get to there, I guess I'm curious now that you've got this business you're building, how is it in your real life? Do you have a real job? Do people know about this? How separate is your NFT 
Jenkins, the valet life from Jenkins, the person in the real world? Increasingly not separate. I mean, Tally Labs, the parent company that owns Jenkins, the valet, is basically like my whole life. And so it's really important to me. It's something that me and my co-founder, Safa, think that we're going to be spending decades on. And so given that, it's sort of one and the same. Obviously, my friends and my family, they don't call me Jenkins unless they're like messing with me. My wife, every so often, will refer to herself as Mrs. Jenkins as a joke. But Jenkins the Valet, and then we'll spend a ton of time when we talk about the business. Jenkins the Valet started as me because I was writing online as Jenkins, telling his story. My background is in creative writing, and I've spent the last decade in software. And so I was posting as Jenkins the Valet. And my best friend for 20 years, who goes by Safa, member of the BAYC, was helping me sort of bring that to market. His background is in brand and community and strategy and things like that. So for a very long time, if you were interacting with Jenkins the Valet on Twitter, it was me. And if I was telling somebody about Jenkins the Valet in real life, I was telling them about myself. The character who is Jenkins and the business that exists around Jenkins and the community that exists around Jenkins is so much bigger than me now that I actually feel more of a separation today probably than I did if we were recording this seven or eight months ago, because there are so many people who get to contribute to the voice of Jenkins or to what he's going to do next or the strategy of the business or anything like that. Even though I spend more time on Jenkins today than I ever did before, I feel like we've made a bit of like a full separation where Jenkins exists sort of on his own out in the universe. He has his own voice and his own point of view. Like If something happens, I might respond differently to it. Me, the human, might respond differently to it than Jenkins would. But we've just spent so much time building this character. I could tell you like right away what I would say versus what Jenkins would. And that's a bit of a funny place to be in. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about the separation identities that you were merged and have decoupled as it's grown bigger than yourself. Yeah, totally. I mean, Safa like messes with me all the time. He's like, at some point, you're going to have to build your own Twitter account because we hijacked your original one, which was Jenkins. I bought my ape back in May. So the project was launched in April. I got in maybe a month afterwards. I don't remember the first story you published. Do you remember the timing of it? Yeah. It was May, maybe a week before Memorial Day, maybe two weeks. I purchased Jenkins off of the secondary market. I did not mint Jenkins. And I can tell you a little bit about why Safa and I sought Jenkins and how that first story came to be. Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, to give people context about it, people were buying these board apes. It wasn't yet a big thing. There was a lot of people creating stories or trying to turn them into characters. But when your stories came out, it became like the biggest thing that everybody wanted to read. So take us back to that kind of first story because it blew everyone else's silly writing out of the water. That's awesome. As like a writer and someone who has spent just like years writing, to hear you say that is the best thing I could possibly hear. So thank you. It almost goes back to before even the BAYC primary sale. In 2020, folks listening will recognize this if they spend time online. You started to see CryptoPunks being used as people's profile pictures. Almost exclusively when a CryptoPunk was being used as someone's profile picture, it would be like Eric Golden with a CryptoPunk. And it would be you and people would talk about how the value of something like a CryptoPunk was the digital flex. People would compare it to like a Rolex, but for like your digital life, things like that. It was a symbol, something that you believed in or that you were willing to put your money in this new like product or something like that. But what people weren't doing was creating characters out of those avatars, especially when Bored Apes came to market in late April. And you started to see apes on the timeline. They did two incredible things. The art is unbelievable. And every single ape looks like it has a story to tell. They're so distinct. You recognize them on the timeline. And the second thing that they did was that they gave commercial rights to the holders and I'm not sure that anybody was really imagining building big businesses out of them. But by even giving the commercial rights to the holder, I think what they were saying was like, this is yours. Like You do what you want with it. It can truly be like a layer of your identity in the sense that like we don't own it at all. And that was really inspiring to Safa and I, because I think I mentioned before, you know, we've known each other for so long, gone to school together, like grade school, all the way through college, always looking for things to do together. 
either just like for fun or professionally, we realized that apes and eventually other NFT avatars could be the next generation of household characters. They look like they have this rich backstory, but that no one was telling them because people were using the avatars for their own profile pictures. We went on the secondary market and we started looking for apes who we felt like had really clear stories. It wasn't a fluke that we landed on Ape 1798, who is Jenkins, or who inspires the character of Jenkins. Some apes are just like clearly sort of like collectibles, and others seem like they might have like a job or have something to say. And certainly Jenkins the ballet looks like he's got something to say. He's the person who you would expect to see when you show up to the club or you roll up to like a hotel. He's literally wearing the ballet outfit. In those early days, you started releasing stories first of Jenkins. And then when I first DM'd you as an Anon, I was desperately trying to get on the list. I think everyone wanted you because we were trying to write stories, but your stories were so good and people were waiting for them to be released that I think people just started to line up. So was Jenkins a business from the beginning or was it that outpouring of, hey, please write my ape story that kind of triggered the, hey, we have a business here? Yeah, it was the outpouring. There was a thesis from the beginning that storytelling behind NFT avatars could be really fun. And so it started as a way to contribute to the community. The day we bought Ape1798, we named him Jenkins the Valet. And then the next day, I sat down and I wrote probably like 500, 600 words as a background, like origin story for Jenkins. The story is that Jenkins is not a member of the club. He's from the other side of the swamp. And he was so lucky and fortunate to get his job as head valet. I mean, to the point where like his mom cried. And since getting the job as head valet at the Yacht Club, he's practiced discretion because he's rubbed shoulders with some of the most powerful and influential apes. And he's done all of their odd jobs. He's snuck mistresses into the club through laundry carts. He's held private keys for people. He's sold private keys. I mean, there's nothing that Jenkins hasn't done. And this is back in May. And at the time, the floor price for an ape was probably like 0.3 or 0.4. Even that felt crazy, right? From 0.08. And so the idea was that since demand for the Board Ape Yacht Club was growing so much, Jenkins had decided to stop his secret keeping ways and do his tell-all. He was going to just share all the secrets of everything that he had ever done as an ape at the Board Ape Yacht Club. And the point was just to contribute a creative space for other people in the community to participate in like some fun storytelling that existed online. I guess if I had to guess what Jenkins would be back then, I would have assumed that he was going to be a character that lived online that just responded to people and did funny things as the valet. That first story, though, went disproportionately well in terms of like virality. I think at the time, Jenkins had like 30 followers and hundreds of new followers followed the account. It was retweeted a bunch, liked a bunch. And so that was the first signal that maybe this thesis that we had that characters could be born on the blockchain was actually something that could be real. And so the next day, we posted a form on Twitter that said, Hey, look, I know I said that I've done all your odd jobs. Fill out this form and tell me what it is that we've done together. And I'll write a backstory for Yuri describing what we've done. And to your point, Eric, right, about like DMing and things like that and how we struck up a relationship. So many ape holders. I mean, in the first few minutes, there were like dozens and then eventually like hundreds of apes wrote in and told us stories about their ape, who they were and what they've done and all these things. And so we just started working down the list and it was impossible. We couldn't get to all of them. But over the next few weeks, we wrote probably a dozen stories. I would like finish work as a product manager, like working in tech, and just immediately open up my laptop and write a story about Jenkins and another eighth. And they kept going well. People kept liking them, like you mentioned. And seriously, it's like a pinch me moment to hear you say how much people like those stories because I loved writing them. And every time we posted one, it would be like another Jenkins story. At that point, I'd say we started to realize there's possibly a business here figuring out a way to scale storytelling. I like when people talk about Web3, they'll talk about unlocks. The first time they put money in a wallet and they transferred it to OpenSea and bought something, they had a completely different experience. And 
these unlocks to me are so special because they do something that is to inspire the entrepreneurial spirit in people. People who were never entrepreneurs or business builders or content creators, suddenly when they get exposed to something like this, see the power of it. To me, what was really special about that moment, and I don't want it to be just about Bored Apes, but at that moment, it really showed, I think, the power of it, of like how good this content was, how fun it was to be part of it, and all the possibilities it could be. So I think now would be a great time because I think Jenkins is doing, Jenkins of LA, the business, Tally Labs is doing some really cool things. Why don't you kind of explain to the people that don't understand Jenkins kind of a backstory of, of what is Tally Labs building? How does Jenkins of LA work? We're really in like the perfect part of the story to even just segue exactly into what that is because as we were writing these stories and as people, the community kept participating, it's a credit to the people who were writing in on that form telling us about their apes. All we were doing with writing these stories was letting them come to life by sort of building upon the amazing things that the community was already telling us. Safa and I looked at each other and we were like, how can we scale this to bring the community in even closer than just posting stories onto Twitter? And that was the birth of a project called The Writer's Room. And really is like the centerpiece to a lot that we've already done with Tally Labs, but also a lot that we will do going forward. And so the writer's room NFTs are 6,942 ERC721 tokens with a nod to meme culture with that number that serve as virtual passes into a member-only web app where members of the community can vote on the creative direction of stories. It's the tell-all that Jenkins promised he was going to deliver with his first story ever. And members of the community can also license their own avatars that they own the commercial rights to, to appear in the work. So community members get to guide the creative and see their characters come to life. And all of that happens in a web app that we built ourselves based off of our backgrounds. We're bringing products to market with amazing Hollywood creators. We were really fortunate as we kept writing stories that we signed to CIA, the Creative Artists Agency, one of the biggest talent agencies in the world, across books and then film, TV, podcasts, and more. And then we signed Neil Strauss, who's a 10-time New York Times bestseller, to actually author the Jenkins tell-all. That's the way that we brought the community in one level deeper. On August 4th of 2021, we brought those almost 7,000 NFTs to market. We could never have expected what happened, which is that they sold out in six minutes. Ever since then, we've been building alongside that community. We've been focused on writing this book, fielding creative proposals from the community for world-building things, plot-defining questions, genre-defining questions for what the shape of the book will look like. And I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but we've also recently announced a pretty significant roadmap 2.0 that involves expanding the storytelling that we do beyond the Board Ape Yacht Club to other communities that already exist in the space, as well as worlds that we're building ourselves. I want to get to CAA, but before we move there, I guess to just double-click down into the writer's room, you sold NFTs. They weren't all created the same. Your vision was that they would have different levels of status. Can you just explain the writer room structure a little bit more of... For someone who doesn't own a board ape, in this case, board apes are the first characters. If you own this NFT, what did you envision you could do with that? The first book that we ever wrote was with board apes and eventually mutant apes as well. But the vision for the writer's room has always been that we would tell stories that included dozens of different NFT avatars. And so when we brought the writer's room NFTs to market, like you mentioned, we did it with four categories. It was a blind mint. Nobody knew what they were going to get. Every NFT was priced at 0.069420 ETH. So call it 0.07 ETH. Each of the NFT categories have sort of a valet motif. There are valet tickets and about 75% of the writer's room NFTs are valet tickets. There are yacht keys and another 20% of the writer's room NFTs are those keys. There are valet stands, and about 4% of the writer's room NFTs are stands. And then there are yachts. You've probably seen them online. They're Wagme yachts, animated sailing through the ocean. And 1% of the NFTs are those yachts. And so you've got 
from the top back down to the bottom, you have yachts, stands, keys, and tickets. Those NFTs have really just two core differences for the first version of the writer's room. And those two differences are, one, as you go down, you get less and less voting power on the creative direction of the stories. So if Neil Strauss wants to ask the community a question that may define the setting or the plot of the genre, and you have a yacht, when you apply votes, you can basically apply 210 points towards all of the different options that you're interested in. If you have a ticket, you can apply five of those votes. The other key difference, probably most important, is that the tier of the NFT that you hold defines the scope that your character has if you license a character to the work. So our 69 yacht holders, when they license an avatar to our work, those characters appear as a character in the story. You can actually go to jenkinsavalley.com slash cast, and you can see the whole cast of all of the characters that have been licensed to the book that Neil is writing. And we've got almost 70 characters who are licensed to book one who will appear in some capacity. The stands are appearing illustrations. The keys appear in a game of where's Jenkins, like where's Waldo on the inside back cover of the book. And the tickets appear sort of in like an expanded acknowledgements. And for everything we ever do in the future, those licensing scope categories will continue. Yachts are always characters. And then we find ways to fit in the other tiers based on the order in whatever we do next. So I think now it's kind of an interesting point to dive into the licensing of content because one thing that made the Board Apes interesting at the time they were released, I'd love to get your take on the different levels of licensing of content. So the way I understand it, correct me if this is wrong, you have the punks who retain the IP and then tell people you can use your avatar, but if you ever make over a certain amount of money, ask us for permission. Board Ape's innovation was, hey, we own the Board Ape brand, but we're going to give the IP of the underlying ape to you. So that's where Jenkins, the valet creation came from. And then we had this CCO with cryptodes, this no copyright where nobody owns anything. Is that how you look at the landscape of licensing? And what is your opinion on the pros and cons as a content creator of the benefits or the drawbacks of each of them? Incredibly like astute analysis, I think, of the three buckets and everything that we do with licensing for our book, I think is a big bet on the second bucket, which is the users own the IP of the underlying asset, the apes, for example, or the cats or the dogs or the aliens, whatever your NFT avatar like of choices. I would expect that the CryptoPunks model where the company owns the right to participate in revenue or completely take revenue over a certain threshold probably won't last in this space based off of the culture in the space and sort of how important decentralization and ownership of your assets is. Maybe there's always going to be something there. And maybe as more and more mainstream folks come into the space and are used to that model, there will be something. It's not something that we're making a bet on. And it's not to say that the assets aren't valuable. I don't have a CryptoPunk. I would love one. It just serves a different purpose. I think it's more an artifact and a piece of art and a representation of something about like the earliest days of Web3 rather than an asset that you would use to monetize. That middle bucket, we're going to spend probably most of our time on that middle bucket because it's the key to our licensing process. I think on the CCO side, to be honest with you, I'm not really sure where that goes. I think CCO always has a place. I think IP being totally open source is really valuable and really good for the space and really good for content creators. And the more IP that is just like outwardly available, the more interesting stories will probably be told. So I'm not surprised when projects opt to bring assets to market that way. But that middle bucket, I think, is the most customer-friendly. Because as a collector or as a buyer of even a few NFTs, there's something really satisfying and exciting about owning the IP yourself. Even if you don't do anything with it, I think that's an example of an unlock. That moment where you buy something and it's yours, and it's yours in a way that a lot of stuff isn't yours. When you buy a toy, like it's not really yours because there's like hundreds of them or thousands of them or hundreds of thousands of them. Like I'm thinking back to being a kid or like even your car or something like that. But like that asset that you just bought is uniquely yours. I think that is incredibly special. 
let's talk a little bit more about that because I think it was really exciting. I own this IP, but I didn't know what to do with it. And then when the writer's room came along, there was this idea that if I bought one of the NFTs and I owned a board ape, I could put those together and potentially get access to royalties off the future sales of the book. Do I understand that economic structure of what you would do with the NFTs accurately? Yeah, exactly. If you hold one of our NFTs and you also have the commercial rights to an avatar that's going to appear in a piece of work. So in the first book, it was Apes and Mutants. You could license the rights to that ape or mutant to us in exchange for being put into a pool of all the licensors, which split 50% of net profits. The first thing about that, we're going to dive deeper into the legal side. I thought one of the coolest things, even though it might have been like anything that's new, so it was confusing at first, was I ended up with more tickets than I had of Bored Apes or Mutants. And so you introduced this thing on the website that I thought was really cool that we could dive into of how to potentially share that maybe you don't you didn't own a mutant or an ape, but you had a Jenkins writer's room ticket and how you could potentially cause like a sharing in any type of future revenue stream. It's funny because it is complicated to bring it to market, but it's actually simple because all that was was helping two parties who actually have nothing to do with the writer's room sign a commercial rights agreement with each other because one person owns the ape or the mutant. And by owning the commercial rights to the ape or mutant, they also have the ability to sublicense it. What we produced in that workflow that we produced was basically the opportunity for one person, you in this case, to go to someone who has an ape or a mutant and say, hey, will you give me the rights in this really narrow scope? Give me the rights to use your ape or your mutant as a character in the writer's room. And in exchange for that, I'll give you X percent of anything I ever make from it. And then what you were able to do is turn around and look at us and say, hey, guys, I actually do have the rights to this new avatar that you didn't know I had, but because I signed this document, now I do have it. And I'd like to license it to you. And what we have in our database by following that licensing going all the way around is we know that the avatar that you licensed to us came from a partnership with someone else. And we know that that person is owed X percent of whatever you agreed to. And so when profits flow to us for book sales, we know where everybody is and what they're owed. And I think that that's really made possible by Web3. I mean, surely somebody could do it with a completely centralized database, but it's way easier and absolutely trustless for the customer by having it all be on-chain. Yeah, I think that maybe a simple concept, but I felt like that was another big unlock from this whole process of people talk about smart contracts all the time. And I think that for the average person, if you don't have a computer science background, it's intimidating to say, what am I going to do with a smart contract? But this was a first real interaction with, okay, I'm going to enter a contract with potentially an absolute stranger or an anonymous person. We're both signing a commercial contract on chain and agreeing to a deal. I just thought that was a really interesting thought. And I guess one thing I was curious as that came out, was that in response to people trying to do it on their own? Or had you always envisioned that as a possibility? It was a little bit of both because the general thought was that we really believe in the ownership of commercial rights. And so enabling people to do what they want with IP that they own is like one of the most exciting things about the whole space. If you then look at the specific UX of it all and how it works, it has to do with the fact that because people own their own IP, they're going to do side deals anyway. So why not enable it sort of in the safest way possible? The one caveat, and I think this is sort of important because it's one of the most challenging things about Web3 space generally, is that we actually didn't facilitate the entire partnership on-chain. We used Web3 and the blockchain to validate ownership of the assets. But once we validated ownership of the assets, we used the traditional software stack to make the best possible user experience for people to go back and forth and come to an agreement as possible. And I think that probably ends up being the user experience that works best for people because it's really hard to interpret the blockchain and to be at the whims of MetaMask and weird states that you get back from them when you have connected or you haven't connected and whatever. And so basically, we had people connect to the site to prove that they own the asset. And then once they prove that they own the asset, we let them sign an agreement that exists in our own database. It's a really interesting point, especially with your background in software, that sometimes people will get really upset. They're super focused on decentralization at all costs. 
was there a point where you really were trying to put everything on chain and you would have preferred it that way? Or are you comfortable with this Web 2, Web 3 world combining? There are pros and cons. I think the most you can put on chain, the better, because it's the most trustless. And I recognize that in the way that we run the process today, folks do have to trust Tally Labs a little bit. Although there's sort of a funny situation with this because there's also this massive social contract. We're trying to build a business with this community forever. Like, what are we going to do? Rug people? That would be psycho for us. And so I think that that almost is just as transparent in the end as the blockchain because people know that they are a licensing pool that is splitting 50% of net profits. And we have vendors who obviously need to be paid. And that's the difference between revenue and net profits is the expenses that literally go to like producing the book. And some of them need to be paid in USD. And so it was going to have to come off chain anyway to pay people in fiat. But ultimately, we're going to need to show our books to the community and be like, this is what we made. This is what we spent that is clearly an expense related to the development of this book. And here's where we're left with net profits. And because this is what we're left with net profits, this is what we split. And I do think for a business that wants to exist here for a long time, giving people the best possible user experience, even if part of it is centralized, ends up solving the problem better than the blockchain would because we have to keep our word or else we don't have a business anyway. I think it's a fair point. And because you are so well-known in the community, I don't worry about the rug factor or else I wouldn't have participated. But I do think it's dangerous for people listening who aren't as are newer to the space. Everyone's promising that they're here for the long term and they're trying to build. And it's hard at times where the chain does offer that trustless sense of, oh, okay, could I do this? But I also think where the technology is limited on gas fees or block size or the things we can do, we're not going to be able to experiment unless we live in this dual world, at least for a while. I'm excited about it. I don't think you could have pulled off a lot of the cool stuff you've done without it. But it's just an interesting thing to think about of, could you have done it all on chain? And what would have the trade-offs been? Yeah, it's a really great point. Truth is, who am I to say like, oh, we're going to do right by everybody. All it takes is one person. Anyone can say that. It's up to who does it. And I think what my commitment to the entire space is that you're going to see us over and over again doing right by the community. But no doubt, it would be awesome to get more and more and more on chain. Like I said, I think the more the better because that's where you see the truth. The trade-offs are gas. Today, for better or worse, our project exists on the Ethereum blockchain and it's expensive to transact on Ethereum. I have high hopes that the work that is being done will improve gas fees. I also think there's some really, really interesting sort of alternatives that are being developed. And we're always looking. And I think one of the things that's best about just like being such a believer in this space is that anytime something new comes up, like we look at it. And so no doubt, I want to be clear that the trustless nature of the blockchain is absolutely a feature and not a bug. And we would love the opportunity to do more and more on chain. We just want to give the community like amazing stories and let people participate at the same time. And today that means needing to prove that we're trustworthy rather than not even needing to worry about it. So going back to your point about CAA and signing with a professional talent agency like that. So I think actually Larva Labs, I think was the first one. And then like a month later, you signed. I'd love to hear, were you seeking a talent agency? I remember the story about where book people, maybe you could tell us what it was like to try to explain this to traditional talent and publishing outlets. I mentioned it was August 4th, 2021 when we our primary sale of writers from NFTs. We had known for a long time that really no matter what happened like with that sale, we wanted a really proven writer to write our first book. And it's one of the things that we think is a major benefit to our business is that you've got this really authentic Web3 community. And if you pair that community with like elite creators, then you can tell a better story than anybody could do on their own. And so that was very much part of our thesis even back then. And so right after that sale, and even a bit beforehand, we had been reaching out to literary agents and authors because we were like, we don't know any better. You know, Safa comes from brand and marketing and I come from software. And even though I have like a writing background, I've never existed in that world. And so we'd been reaching out directly to agents and authors. And 
90% didn't respond. And the other 10% were just like straight up mean. People saying, all they would say back is, I've never gotten an email from a cartoon monkey before. And then just like, but like not respond to us. We were professionals. We were writing, I think, what was a great email, reaching out to people. And somebody said, and this is the legend of like, we are book people. They rejected us on the author that we'd specifically reached out about. We responded and we said, is there anybody that you represent that you think this might be a good fit for? They responded and said, there's nobody that I represent that I would ever send this along to. You're sharing something that could be interesting, but this is absolutely not for us because we are book people. And at that point, we were demoralized. We were not going to stop, but it was demoralizing. And I think the worst part about that email is Safa and I are literally book people. We love books. We love all types of media and just like seeing creators do things. And so that one hit home because it was like, wow, we're coming from a different place. And just because we're coming from a different place, we're sort of cast out. And so at that point, and obviously the community has really rallied around that email and and our first merch run says we are book people on it. And that's like a really important part of the ethos of our community. But so after that, we were like, all right, we need some help. And we networked into CAA through a mutual friend who's a writer there, not even to sort of pitch them on representation or anything like that, but just to get some feedback on what we were reaching out with and to see if we could do it better. There was one person who asked us to make them an offer. And Saf and I looked at each other and we were like, what's an offer? We have no idea what the components are of an offer for an author. And so that was pretty funny. And we wanted to talk to CIA just to clean it up a little bit and get some advice. And credit to them, when we told them what we were doing, they came back to us really quickly and they were like, you know what? We think we can help you in a significantly different capacity. They offered to represent us across books. They helped us partner with Neil Strauss and find him, who's been amazing. He um, just last week read a few pages of the book to us in a private meeting that he's going to bring the community soon. And it's outstanding. And so CAA did that deal for us. And then eventually, we ended up working with the podcast team. And we just announced a partnership with Salt Audio, who is just an incredible partner that's done work with Dave Chappelle, Rami Malek, like a whole bunch of amazing projects. And now we're working with them on TV and film and things like that as well. It's an amazing turnaround from being rejected by everyone to getting Neil Strauss, a New York Times bestseller. Yeah, it's true. Did CAA have, I'm curious, over their lineup of like, were there multiple authors who thought this was a good idea? Was Neil like, that's kind of crazy, but I'm interested. Did you go through multiple authors before picking him? It was funny because we had been pounding the pavement for so long. Actually, Neil came up through sort of a couple different avenues. And because he came up in a few spaces, it felt right. One of our advisors is G-Money, one of the first to sort of ever really build upon an NFT avatar and build a pseudonym. He knew Neil. So he actually connected us to Neil and we had a call with him at the same time that we were going through the process with CAA. When we told them what we were trying to do, they immediately thought that memoirs could be like an awesome place to look. We had been thinking of young adult or fantasy or something like that. And we'd considered memoir, but we hadn't really thought about what we're doing with a Jenkins tell-all is writing sort of the same thing as like what a memoirist might do. It's just fiction. So they had thought about Neil as well. And we were like, oh, you know, we've already met him. It just all came together. He clearly likes to be on the cutting edge and is interested in projects that are different than what other people are doing. And so the vibe with the very beginning was different than folks who turned us down because he thought it was just like weird and fascinating and exciting. And it was a fast turnaround. It felt different when we started talking to Neil. At this point in the story, you've got a huge agency, you've got Neil Strauss. At any point, did the Board Ape Yacht Club founders reach out to you and or interest? Have you had any connection with them as this project has been going on? Yeah, absolutely. And we are so fortunate to like know them and they're just incredible. They're so supportive of the whole community. And one of the first things that ever was a validator for Jenkins, as you may remember early, I mean, it must have been June, the BAYC team did a community grant. Jenkins the Valet was one of the winners of the community grant. They have supported us from the very beginning, even when all we were doing was posting the stories to Twitter. When we filled out their application for the community grant, 
we wanted to use the money on website development. And we ended up doing just that to like give Jenkins a little more of a life. And since then, they've been insanely supportive. We shared the author with them and they were excited about that. We have worked with them to be able to set the book at the Yacht Club. We had the chance to just talk to them briefly at NFT NYC. And Gordon said, and this is him speaking, he said, we built the sandbox, all the apes and the mutants and the dogs built the sand castles. And I think because they have that point of view about what it is that they're doing with the Board Ape Yacht Club, it's what allows so many amazing projects to like flourish. I mean, even now, how many different apes are doing something interesting? Like even the fact that on this podcast, it's like two apes talking. There's this whole industry that has blown up around the fact that they're letting us play in that sandbox. And so we owe them quite a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I love that quote about the sandbox. I think that one's been shared a bunch of times. It just adds to the myth of Gordon. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about value accrual. And I think this is a big topic in all of Web3 and crypto and DeFi and NFT. So I don't think we need to get too specifically into Jenkins. But as a creator who has tokens, and there's obviously very large markets around these things that are traded, I'd just be curious to get your thoughts as you've gotten outside counsel from people, as you've thought about building it. How do you think about where and how value accrues? It's hard. And it's almost like the definition of trying to figure out almost like culture is really hard. Because for me, value accrual has everything to do with doing things with a community that people care about. And our little sliver of the Web3 community is all about storytelling. And storytelling that is sort of backed by these NFT avatars that are all begging for their stories to be told. And so for us, what we try to do is the traditional writer's room is like impossible to break into. You need to go out probably to Hollywood. To clarify, because I don't know, what is a traditional writer's room? What does that mean? It's the group of people that write the stuff that we watch on TV. It's like six people. There's somebody called a showrunner. They're like the team captain. And then there's a bunch of like funnier, smart people that sit around a table and figure out the best stuff to write. And that's how like scripts are written and TV series are written and things like that. What a dream job. But nobody gets those jobs. The way that you get those jobs, it would be, let's say it this way. There's no chance in the world that all of the smart, funny people who want to contribute to storytelling and are interested in doing that have the opportunity to join a writer's What we wanted to do with our virtual writer's room is expand the scope of people, forget where you live, forget what you believe in, forget who you know, just join us on the internet to participate in the creation of like amazing stories that we hope will come to define the metaverse. By finding people who want to participate in that, and then by not stopping ever to keep doing that thing, value accrues back to the thing that the people hold that gives them access to that, right? To their credentials. Because that process of writing stories with people turns out to be a whole lot more valuable than I think anybody thought it was. The more we do and the more people want to join, I suppose the more value there is. Just to put some more context around it, when you guys the numbers that I think we came up where you sold NFTs that raised 700,000 secondary sales are probably just as much. When you fundraised, that's like roughly 1.4 to $1.5 million. Did you guys take any outside money or was all the money from the NFT primary and secondary sales? On the primary sale, we did about 1.3 million USD at the time of the NFT sale. And since then, we've done $15 million and secondary sales, Tally Labs takes a 5% royalty on that. So what is that? Like another almost $500,000, $450,000. So you've got, call it like 1.7 or 1.8 million there. We haven't raised any money today and we've run the business. It was basically a non-dilutive seed round. And everything that we've done has just been reinvesting those dollars into the business to try to do more. 
there's this whole roadmap that we're working on that introduces, it's going to introduce the Web3 community to Azerbala, which is the jungle capital on the other side of the metaverse. It's a world that we're building ourselves with Emma Needell, just a super talented screenwriter, another CAA client, and avatars will live there, obviously. And there's all these other things that we're bringing to market that are made possible by the fact that people find distributed storytelling to be something that they want to participate in. And we're not going to stop until we make it just the most amazing thing that we can for our customers. So I think that's a interesting component of this piece is how you have this writer's room where people can give feedback if they want. And there's this idea that people have that there's a lot of voting fatigue or participation. And so I'm sure you see it that there's even within Jenkins, the community or in the writer's room, there's super fans, there's people that are fans that aren't participating. When you have a vote to make a decision for the story, what type of participation rates do you see with people actually voting? Depends on the proposal. As a product manager who's worked on consumer products for a long time, I'm still shocked by the numbers. Somewhere between 40 and 80% participation, depending on the question. But here's the thing that I think is so important about the writer's room. It's not just the votes that exist in our V1 portal today that I think we think of as being like the definition of folks engaging. People join town halls and Twitter spaces. They talk to Neil in gated Discord channels. They license their apes or their mutants and in the future other avatars and they write backstory. All of those things, eventually they're going to mint avatars who live in Azerbala, who have their own stories to tell and they'll do whatever they want to do with them and we'll be watching and creating content alongside them. All of that also counts to me as participating in the writer's room. So it's not just the formal act of voting, I think. I'm actually kind of blown away by the numbers. I think that maybe it's the excitement and the passion for the project, but I think that's a testament to the community you're building. What have been... I've been curious, because I'm sure you get a lot of inbound from the other projects that want to join. What has kind of been the most vocal group that's wanted to kind of become the next book two? Oh, man. Let's say this. There are all these times... If you're on Twitter, right, with Jenkins, there are times where Jenkins will make an offhand comment in the replies to someone of a different community. Most recently, I can think we made a comment to someone who was a member of the Azuki community. We made a comment to someone who was a member of the Bubblegum Kids community, two wildly different communities, different art, different styles, different entry points, like all of that. And every time we're blown away by the reception, those little comments get. And so we're really excited with our audio experience for Jenkins to be visiting new communities and to see what it is that makes those communities tick and to learn more about the characters who join us for the ride. Let's talk about Twitter replies and trolling accounts. So Mutant Jenkins, this is an account on Twitter that is snarky and funny and makes me laugh. And so I have to ask you, are you Mutant Jenkins or is this a third party that's just super creative? Thank God that we are Mutant Jenkins. I think if Mutant Jenkins was someone else, I would be losing sleep. I love that you asked that question because one of the most important things to us is to let characters have their own voices. And I think the fact that the mutant has such a distinct voice and does not hold back is a perk. It's crazy actually how often people say, hey, like, are you guys the mutant? Because that guy seems like sort of mean. We run that account. We own Jenkins the Mutant and will be donating significant ownership interest in or contributing significant ownership interest in Jenkins and Jenkins the Mutant and good boy Jenkins' dog to a character DAO that we've announced somewhat recently. And so those will be characters that are completely uh, or sort of owned in part by the community as well. It's funny. I would say more often than not, Mutant replies come from my co-founder, Safa, He's hilarious and he's smart and he's clever. And there have probably been like two or three though, where he'll reply something and it will like hurt my feelings. <laughs> and, and so, and in those moments, I've come to like try to be mature enough to realize that like that's probably a really good post. And so I just send him a note and I'm like, that was like great mutant or something. We run that account. It's excellent. I mean, the back and forth is so good. I wasn't sure if it was you or just a great, clever troller. So I try to end all of our podcasts with kind of a two-part question. And I think that I'm really excited to hear because of Roadmap 2.0, what you're thinking here. 
But as a builder, what are you excited to see built over the next six months? And then what are you excited to see built over the six years? And let us in on as much as you can about Roadmap 2.0 and what's coming next for Jenkins the Valet. In the next six months, I'm really excited to see all of the stuff that comes to market from 2021 vintage of NFT projects. Obviously, a lot have gone away, but if we say that 2021 was really like a story about like PFPs and avatars and storytelling is obviously really close to my heart. I think a lot of those communities have started to show us that they want to be telling stories about their world and they want to be adding more to what they're doing. Super excited to see what people come out with. I love creativity first and foremost before anything else. I love storytelling. And so anyone who's working on that stuff, I think probably in the next six months, we'll start to see it coming out. And that'll be really fun for all of us. Six years, I'm excited. And it's not a focus of ours at Thai Labs, but I'm excited about video games. I mean, I think six years is probably the type of time frame that actually works to bring a game to market. And I think when consumers actually own their characters and own the assets that they use in a video game, that'll be a huge unlock for the NFT space. It'll let people wrap their head around what it means to own a digital asset. For us, I think the next decade is going to be defined by two really big things. One is going to be just a constant commitment to creating media at the highest level, trying to tell just like world-class stories that stand on their own outside of the NFT space. And then finding ways for our writers, members, and people who join us in other capacities to build out their own stories and to find connections with other people who have related stories and build content in a truly decentralized way that I think will end redefining the way that people consume storytelling going forward. That's a long, long, long journey for sure. Yeah, I'm super excited with what you are building and where this is going. I think that delivering the form that you chose to deliver a book with a world-class writer involving the community is just a really exciting way to see this next generation of media and content creation. And I just can't wait to see what you guys do next. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for having me on the pod today. It's been an absolute blast. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 